0: All right, Haggai chapter one, starting in verse one. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This, people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains, and on the grain, and on the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labors of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of jehoshadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the presence of the Lord Then Haggai the Lord's messenger spoke the Lord's message to the people saying I am with you says the Lord So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest And the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, I remember when I was growing up and was going to school and struggling between what I wanted to do and what my parents wanted me to do and what the teachers I was going to school wanted me to do. What I wanted to do was I wanted to stay home, watch cartoons, read comic books, play outside with my friends. My parents on the other hand, they wanted to quash my joy. They wanted me to study hard. They wanted me to do my homework. They wanted me to get good grades. And then after doing all that, then I could go outside and do whatever I wanted. Now when I prioritized my priorities, I got yelled at, I got punished. And I received bad grades from school. But when I finally got the message and I started to prioritize what my parents and teachers wanted, not only did I not get yelled at, but I also got good grades and then I was allowed to do what I wanted to do. Well, the story of Haggai 1 through 15 is basically a story of misplaced priorities. Now, we all know what misplaced priorities are, right? Just like the story of my youth, and I'm sure the shared experiences of many of us, the people of Haggai's time were suffering from misplaced priorities. They started off by focusing on God's promises, but then they got sidetracked and started focusing on their own priorities instead. And as a result, they not only didn't get what they wanted, but they also started to receive God's rebuke, as we will see in a moment. Now, We need a little bit of context, a little bit of background to understand Haggai. The book of Haggai, along with Zechariah and Malachi, those three prophets together are what they call post-exilic prophets. So these are prophets that God sent to his people after the exile. So if you recall the exile, the people of Israel lived in the land for a number of centuries, and then due to their sin, due to their repeated covenant breaking, God judged them by driving them out of the land. They were exiled. The the southern kingdom of Judah was exiled in 586 B.C. to the Babylonian Empire. And then after 70 years, the people were allowed to return to the land. And they were allowed to return by, by Cyrus, king of Persia. And they were allowed to come back to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls, and to rebuild the temple. So when the people arrived back in Jerusalem, the returning remnant, they started the rebuilding program. However, there was some opposition to what they were doing. The rebuilding program stalls, and you can read about this in Ezra chapters 3 and 4. So the Jews have been back in the Promised Land now for 18 years, and all they have to show for it now is the temple that still lies in ruins. They came back to build the temple, they stopped building the temple, and the temple still lies in ruins. The people had a case of misplaced priorities. And God then sends the prophet Haggai to them to straighten them out. That's what the prophet does. So as we look at this passage this morning, the central idea I want to get across this morning is when God's people prioritize God's kingdom, they receive God's blessings. When God's people prioritize God's kingdom, they receive God's blessings. And I'm going to break from tradition. There's only two points today. The first point will be a little longer, so maybe it could have been three points, but it's two points. The first point is the challenge from the Lord, which we'll see in verses 1 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 15, you see the response by the people. Quite simply, the challenge from the Lord, the response by the people. So let's look first at the challenge from the Lord in verses 1 through 11. Buckle up, this is gonna, we're going to be in this one for a little bit. Now look again at verses 1 through 2 as we see the Lord's challenge. Uh, so it says in the second year of King Darius in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, uh, the governor, and to or Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And this is what the Lord says. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, as you all know, Old Testament prophets were the Lord's spokesmen. They were the mouthpieces of God. They were sent by God to warn the people, to rebuke the people, to correct the people, to bring the people back into covenant faithfulness. They oftentimes warned the people uh, that to turn away from their sin and idolatry and to come back into a right relationship with the Lord. However, what makes Haggai's prophecy just a little bit different from many of the other Old Testament prophets is that Haggai is warning the people against their indifference. He's warning them against their indifference, in particular, their indifference to God's house, the temple. Now, notice how Haggai's first oracle, that's what they call these things, there are oracles, there are four oracles in Haggai. And the first one, the prophet is taking the words of the people and turning it back on them. The people were saying, well, okay, we tried to build the temple. But we were being slowed down, we were being uh, obstructed, there was resistance, so I guess it's not the time yet to build the temple. And God sends Haggai, he says, oh, you think it's not time to build the temple? Let me tell you a few things. These people say it isn't time to build the house of the Lord. As we saw earlier, they had started to build the temple, but for whatever reason got sidetracked and they put it on the back burner. The time isn't right, so they stopped, they stopped seeking God's priorities, And so they started pursuing their own priorities instead. So Haggai brings God's message to the leadership of the people, to Zerubbabel, who is the governor, and to Joshua, who is the religious leader. He is the high priest. Now, it's always interesting to note how God refers to himself when he speaks to his people. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the the entire Bible, really, the names of God say a lot about how God is communicating himself to the people. And here in verse 2, God refers to himself as the Lord of hosts, or other translations, the NIV calls him Lord Almighty. This is a very popular Old Testament name for God, particularly in these post-exilic prophets, these prophets who come to the people after they have returned to the land. There are 38 verses in the book of Haggai, and the Lord refers to himself as the Lord of hosts 14 times in these 38 verses. It's a military term, the Lord of hosts. It pictures God as the commander of the vast angelic army, the, the hosts of heaven, the, these angels that are said to be 10,000 upon 10,000 angels, in other words, An infinite number of angels, and God is the leader. He is the commander of this vast army. In other words, it emphasizes God's sovereign control and rule over all things. He controls the fortunes of his people, he controls the nations, he establishes and and, and deposes kingdoms, he directs nature. God is sovereign. Now, why does God refer to himself this way? Well, this is very important for these people here, the remnant, to know and recognize uh, this at this point in time. Because Judah here now, the the returning remnant, is a small group of people. They are now part of an insignificant little province in this vast, enormous Persian empire. So they, they need to know that even though they are being ruled by the Persians, it is really God who is in control. And for us in this day and age, we also need to know this too. We need to know that God is in control. Not President Trump, not Vladimir Putin, not any of the leaders of the world. They are not in control. God is in control. We are a pilgrim people. We are people who are elect exiles, as the Bible says. We are sojourners. We are people journeying through this world To a better home, heaven. In other words, this world is not our home. We live here, we are resident aliens, but this world is not our ultimate home. And it is often hostile to the things of God and to the things of Christ. What God is getting across here with this idea that He is the Lord of hosts is that He is a God who is in control, He is sovereign, and we can trust in Him, we can rest in this truth. When things in the world feel like they're coming down upon, even like today, especially today, I mean, how many here people wish we can get a refund on 2020? I mean, seriously, how many people wish we could just get a refund for the remainder of 2020 and just start up in 2021 again? We need to know without, with all the things going on us in, in this world today, all the chaos, all the weirdness, murder hornets or whatever is going on, God is in control of all of these things. Now back to the Lord's complaint. So the word of the Lord of hosts comes by the hand of Haggai to the leaders of the people. God rebukes his people. This time, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's what they're saying. The people have been in the land 18 years and have nothing to show for it. There were people who were against the rebuilding of the temple and they stirred up opposition to the rebuilding project. So the people backed down. And here, this is something that you're going to see throughout your Christian life, throughout the entire history of the Christian life. The world, the flesh, and the devil will always, 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 always resist the work and plans of God. If the people of God are faithful, carrying out the work of the kingdom of God, they will inevitably meet resistance. It's just a fact of life. It was true in Haggai's time. And it is true in our time as well. So the question becomes, not will we meet resistance? That's going to happen. The question then is, since we can't stop it, what do we do? Do we fold up camp and go home? Or do we trust in God, a sovereign God, the Lord of hosts, and persevere? Well, it's pretty obvious what the people on Haggai's day did. They chose option one. They went through door number one. We're going to just pack up. This is too tough. Let's just pack up and go home. But don't miss this. The Lord is being patient and gracious to his people by sending them a prophet. He's not going to let his people just sort of wither in weakness. He's going to send a prophet to stir them up. And that's what we see here in verses 3 and 4. As the prophet then comes again, the word of the Lord came again by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? This is a stinging indictment by God to the people. The people have gotten their priorities backwards. Instead of building the Lord's house, they were sort of, going on their own rebuilding projects. They were doing their own home remodeling projects. It's sort of like, you know, what is it? The home improvement. They were doing home improvement on themselves. This language here of paneled houses is the same phrase you see in 1 Kings 6-9 in reference to the first temple, Solomon's temple. In other words, instead of building the temple of the Lord, what the people were doing was they were turning their own houses into little temples. They were templeizing their houses, so to speak. It would be like, you know, we were here building up Emmanuel Reformed Church, and we're like, okay, well, there's a lot of resistance, so I'm going to take these stained glass windows, I'm going to put them in my own house. I'm going to take these nice brick walls and put them in my own house, and this nice little rock climbing thing behind me, I'm going to put it in my own house. How about that? I can't build the church. I might as well spruce up my own house. Well, what does this suggest? It suggests misplaced priorities. It's not that the time wasn't right to build the house of the Lord. It's not that they didn't have the resources to build the house of the Lord. It's that they lost their focus. And instead were engaging their own building projects. Now maybe we might ask, what's the big deal about this, right? I mean, is a place of worship that big a deal? I mean, what does, John, what does Jesus say in John chapter 4? When, the, lady, when the, the Samaritan woman says... Well, where should we worship? Should we worship here in Jerusalem like the Jews say? Or should we worship on Mount Gerizim like my my ancestors say? And Jesus says neither because it's neither in there or here because the people of God worship in spirit and truth. So what does it matter where we worship? What does the place of worship matter? Well, to say that is to ignore the importance of the temple. The temple is much, much more than just the place where Old Testament Jews worshipped. The temple represented the presence of God amongst his people. You see this in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, in a sense, is a garden temple in which God meets with his people, Adam and Eve. You see it at Sinai, where the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai to meet with his people. You see it in the tabernacle, the traveling tent, That was the throne room of God. And finally you see it in the temple. All of these temple images represent the the dwelling of God with his people. It is the fulfillment of the promise of God to be their God. And for them that they would be his people. So God in wanting his house to be rebuilt. Is telling his people that he wants to renew his covenant relationship with them. The relationship that Israel violated with their sin. Now, don't miss the importance of this. A decaying temple is, symbolizes a decaying relationship with God. A decaying temple symbolizes a decaying relationship with God. So in verses 5 and 6, then, God tells his people, now, consider your ways. Consider your ways. You have sown much and brought in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you are never filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put him into a bag with holes. To paraphrase Dr. Phil, who would say you thought it was okay to put my house on the back burner while you worked on your own houses? How's that working for you? Well, it's not working for them very well Indeed you look at verse 6, you see the result when the people prioritize their own comfort ahead of God's kingdom plans. They sowed much, but they harvested little. They ate, but they never had enough. They drank, but they never had their fill. They put on a bunch of clothes, but they never felt warm. And they earned wages only to put them into a bag with holes. Many of you are farmers. Imagine sowing much, and then come harvest time, you've got a tenth of what you were hoping to get. That's kind of the idea here. In other words, they did a lot of work and they had very little to show for it. They had unsatisfying work and fruitless labor. But they could say, well, we're poor, hungry, thirsty, cold, and penniless, but look at my house. My house is splendid. I have a nice-looking temple home. I may be poor, but I've got a nice-looking house. God says to them, Consider your ways. Look at what you're doing. This is a wake-up call to his people. Consider your ways. God, through his prophet Haggai, is trying to get his covenant people to connect the dots. To connect the dots between his house that lies in ruins and their current fruitless labors. Remember, God is the Lord of hosts. He is sovereign even over the fortunes of his people. So then in verses 7 and 8, he tells them again to consider your ways. Consider your ways one more time. Instead of focusing on your priorities, stop and take some time to think about what you're doing. Now again, remember, we mentioned that the Lord was showing patience and grace toward his people by sending the prophet to them. So get this, because God loves his people, he warns and rebukes them. When they lose their focus, when they get their priorities out of whack. Why? Because they are his people. Because they are his people. The point is this, God disciplines his children because he loves them. That's what the writer of Hebrews says when he quotes Proverbs 3 that says, God chastens those whom he loves. If you're not receiving the Lord's discipline, it might mean that you're not a child of God. But if you are being disciplined by the Lord, it is because he loves you and wants you to mature and he wants to sanctify you. So consider your ways. Consider your ways. And then in verse 8, he commands his people, Build my house. Build my house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. These two words, pleasure and glorify, highlight The twin functions of the temple. This word pleasure is the same language used in reference to the temple sacrifices in which God took pleasure in the sacrifices of of his people when they were offered rightly before him. An acceptable sacrifice for sin was a pleasing aroma in his nostrils. And of course, glory, as we mentioned earlier, the temple was the place where God dwelt is where his glory descended upon the temple. So when God says, build my house, he is saying, get your priorities straight. Seek my pleasure. Seek my glory. And then in verse 9, we see this again, this notion of futility where you looked for much and it came to little when you brought it home. And even the little bit that you brought home, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house that lies in ruins while you busy yourselves with your own houses. Now, we've talked a lot about misplaced priorities, ours versus God, and we know that for the people of Haggai's time, it was building their own houses instead of God's house. But what does misplaced priorities in reference to the kingdom of God look like for us? Well, I think there are three main areas where we misplace God's priorities with our own. Money, time, and family. Money, time, and family. Just a few examples. Money. Suppose you come into a, a financial windfall. Instead of seeing how you can help support the work of God's kingdom, you start to, let's say, plan a vacation. Or time. You're seeking a promotion at work, and the only way to get noticed is to work weekend shifts that require you to miss Sunday worship. Or family. You want to get your children to summer sports leagues, but they have games on Sunday which require you to miss Sunday worship. Now, in these examples, I want you to understand, please, please, please don't misunderstand me when I say this. Vacations, promotions, youth sports leagues, they're not wrong. They're not wrong in themselves. In fact, they're all very good things. The point I'm trying to make is that when we prioritize these things ahead of God's priorities, ahead of his pleasure, ahead of his glory, we shouldn't be surprised then if we earn wages to put him into a bag with holes. Build my house. That's what the Lord says. And then in verses 10 and 11, we see that because God's people didn't prioritize God's kingdom, we see that even the heavens held back their rain and there was a drought on the land. And these phenomena, uh, the heavens holding back rain and the drought over the land, they remind the people of the covenant curses that God gives you in Deuteronomy 28, when he says, if you do not obey the terms of my covenant, then I will withhold the rain. I will withhold the produce of the land. In other words, there is a causal link between God's house lying in ruins and ruin coming upon the land. The people's neglect of God's house is the same thing as forsaking the covenant. That was our first point. Now we're on to point two. This will be a little quicker. So, what does it look like when to prioritize God's kingdom? Well, in Haggai's case, it is building the house of the Lord in verse 12, where he see, says, the people respond here with obedience and fear. From the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, all the way down to the people, every last one of them. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and they feared the Lord. This twofold response by the people of God, obedience and fear. This is how covenant people respond. Their covenant God. God reorients the people from indifference and disobedience to reverence and obedience. This is both a change of heart and a change of behavior, and both are needed and both mark true repentance. When God's people are convicted of their lack of focus and misplaced priorities, they then turned in obedience to the Lord, their God. And this signifies two things. First, that the remnant here, the people here, are true believers. They were pricked in their con- consciences. They heard the word of the Lord, and they responded obediently. This is seen in the fact that their hearts were softened and prepared to receive the Lord's rebuke through the words of Haggai the prophet. And then they were then motivated into action. And here again, we see the graciousness of the Lord. He knows we're weak. He knows that we wander and go astray. And He is patient with us. He is patient with us. He rebukes us in love, not in judgment. He rebukes us in love with fatherly discipline to get us back on the right track. Again, the Lord is interested in our sanctification, in our growth to maturity. Like any good parent, when he, sees, when he or she sees their child going in the wrong direction, you nudge them to get them back on the right track. And maybe that nudge might be a little, a little more rough than, than others, but still you want to get them back on the right track. When we understand that the Lord wants the best for us, namely he wants us to glorify him and enjoy him forever, then we will respond favorably to the Lord's chastisement. And the, the truth of the matter is this. The sooner we understand this, the easier then it becomes for us to yield to the Spirit's prompting in our lives. The harder, the more we resist, the harder it becomes for us. Now, not only are the people motivated, motivated by obedience, but they also says here in the text, they feared the Lord. Now, to the Jewish mind, the fear of the Lord is that attitude of reverence. That attitude of awe, that attitude of fear that marks the foundation, the starting point for knowledge, for growth, and for wisdom. That's why the the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, this speaks of the people sort of recalibrating their priorities from focusing on their panel houses to now focusing on building the house of the Lord. The fear of the Lord isn't fear of impending final judgment, but a reorientation of the people back to obedience and back to godly living. And then once the people are properly motivated, once they have their priorities adjusted, we yet again see God's graciousness in verse 13. The Lord of hosts sends another word by the prophet Haggai. But instead of saying, consider your ways, instead of this warning word, he then says, I am with you. I am with you. These are four beautiful gospel words. I am with you. If you're prone to highlighting things in your Bible or underlining things in your Bible, underline these words and then look over at your neighbor's Bible. And if they don't have them underlined, underline them in their Bible as well. These are important words. These are gospel words. When the Lord says, I am with you. These are covenant words, words that bring reassurance, words that bring hope. The words of the covenant are, again, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the exile from which the remnant returned was the result of centuries of covenant unfaithfulness by the people. But where they are unfaithful, God is faithful. And, And look again at those words and note that it's not, I will be with you. In other words, Once you're finished building the temple, then I will be with you. No, it is, I am with you. Once you get your mind straight, the the Lord then immediately blesses his people with his presence. The temple's not even built yet. Yet the Lord is saying, I am with you now. This is not only a promise to God's people now, but also looks forward to Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the true God with us. Emmanuel Again, Emmanuel, that's what it means. It means God with us, both in his first coming in humility and in his return in glory at the end of the age. This is a great blessing that we have as God's new covenant people in Christ. Not only does God rebuke and chastise us when we go astray, but then he shines his face upon us in love and grace when we repent and obey. And it's important to note that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by our works. But we are saved unto good works. We are saved unto good works. Or put it another way, we are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. And when we renew our focus and put God's kingdom first, then God blesses us. Hmm. Now, this is something that those who are outside of the covenant uh, don't have. They don't have this assurance. The unbeliever has no assurance that God will be with them. God is not with them, in fact. But for Christians, it is a beautiful promise of hope. We can and often do fail, and we can fail miserably. Yet God in Christ is with us. What a promise this is. God in Christ is with us. This is a promise for young and old alike, for the babe in Christ as well as the mature believer. And because of the Lord's presence to bless his people, they are then equipped and empowered to do the work. And that's what we see in 14 and 15, a spirit-filled revival. The Lord stirred them up from the leaders all the way down to the least of these. Their repentance was genuine. And with the Lord stirring them up, the people then began to work on the Lord's ruined house with gusto, working both for God's pleasure and God's glory. Beloved, this is nothing short than a spirit-filled revival. But it's a revival not with the anxious bench and 43 choruses of just as I am, but rather this is a true work of the Spirit of God, working in the people of God so that they take up the work of the kingdom of God to receive the blessing of God. So what is our takeaway then from this message in Haggai chapter 1? I mean, surely we can understand and resonate with the notion of prioritizing God's kingdom. And, and, and as God's covenant people, we strive to be obedient and reverent to our Heavenly Father. But, but God, through Haggai, called his people to build his house. That is, to rebuild the temple. And we can rightly ask them, what does that look like for us? I mean, we don't build temples anymore, right? Well, here are two ways not to understand this passage. This idea of calling to to build the house of the Lord is not a call for us to engage in church building projects. In other words, you know, if God blesses Emmanuel with with amazing abundant growth and we outgrow this facility and we need to expand a little bit, it's not time to then, you know, dust off a sermon on Haggai 1 and call God's people to build the house of the Lord so we can build the extension, you know, out back behind the church or whatever. And it's also not a call for personal prosperity. In other words, if you give to God's kingdom, then then he will abundantly bless you. This is building the house of the Lord out of a motivation for personal gain, not for the pleasure and glory of the Lord. We build God's house so that he will take pleasure in it and that his glory will be manifest. So then how do we apply Haggai chapter 1? Well, first, as we've been saying all along, uh, the command from Haggai was to rebuild the temple. Now, the temple is both the place where God took pleasure in our sacrifices for sin and where God's glory dwelt. And the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, the once for all sacrifice that Jesus uh, gave for sin not only fulfills the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, But it is the only sacrifice that the father takes full and complete pleasure in. In John chapter 1 verse 14, John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled. That's what the word means. It means tabernacle or he templed among us. And it says we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Jesus is the ultimate dwelling place of God's glory. And the symbol of God's presence among his people, uh, among us today, is the body of Christ itself. That's why we read from John chapter 2 this morning. As Jesus was cleansing the temple, he tells the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And then it said that he was talking about the temple of his body, not the actual temple itself. The temple of his body. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the temple. He is the fulfillment of the temple imagery. And then today, the church of Jesus Christ is the body of the Lord, which means we are the new temple. The church of Jesus Christ is the new temple. Ephesians 2 speaks of how the church is a holy temple to the Lord, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of the new temple. And furthermore, in 1 Peter 2, he speaks about we who are in Christ are living stones. We are living stones being built up into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable and pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. Again, that's temple imagery there. We, the body of Christ, believers, are the temple temple. So building up the house of the Lord is not going to the hills for wood and stone and whatever, to, but it is by building a spiritual house, by bringing people to Christ and incorporating them into the living uh, temple here, the holy temple of the Lord built up by these living stones. So building God's house is building God's kingdom. And we build God's kingdom when we raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that they confirm the promises that... If, that were sealed into them in their baptism. We build God's kingdom when we share the love of Christ our, with our unsaved family, friends, and neighbors, inviting them to church so that they can hear the gospel proclaimed and themselves receive salvation. And we build God's kingdom when we come alongside a wayward brother or sister in the Lord and lovingly encourage them back into covenant fidelity. And all of this then looks forward to the time when Christ returns in glory. Revelation 21.3 tells us that as the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, it is said that the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And it is said that in this new Jerusalem, there will be no temple. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, they are the temple. They will dwell with us in the Fullness. Until then, let us heed what our Lord said in Matthew six thirty three: Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, all the things that you need, food, clothing, whatever, will be added unto you. Our Lord wants us to seek His kingdom first, because He knows that in doing so, we are fulfilling our original creative purpose and our ultimate purpose as well, which is glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Remember, when God's people prioritize God's kingdom, they will receive God's blessing. Let us pray.